Ladies and gentlemen, we will now have a keynote address by Mr. Kim Anderson. He is the Managing Director of DACA Advisory, a consultant to the World Bank and advisor to the United Nations. He specialises in the intersection of the digital economy and the public sector, including e-government, cybersecurity and digital divides. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Anderson. Thank you very much, uh, Nadzira, for that very kind introduction. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here today. I always say uh, it's very nice to visit Singapore, but uh, today in particular, because we're here to discuss such an important topic. And I think the uh, Minister Svaran did a very nice job of setting the stage for the importance of the topic. But let me just tell you a quick anecdote of how I ended up being here today. You know, I started more than 15 years ago in e-government consulting. One of the projects that I was working on was the United Nations e-government benchmarking effort to assess how the 193 UN member states do in terms of e-government services. So we were tracking progress, and uh, of course it's a linear improvement, and more and more services were coming online and more and more information. But at some point I realized that is there a downside to all this? So I became very interested in cybersecurity. And at that time, it wasn't a very popular topic because people were so focused on simply putting services and information online. So I did my master's thesis on cybersecurity back in 2002. And when I went to see my professor about this, he said, you know, Kim, it's a good paper, but do you really think this will be important in the future? And this was 17 years ago. And today, we see cybersecurity in the news every single day. Now, to me, this is an evolution. Stage one, being providing the information and the services. Stage two, realizing the potential consequences of cybersecurity. Today, I think we're at stage three, which would be digital inclusion. We need to raise awareness about digital inclusion to make it as important of a topic as cybersecurity is today. The way I approached the topic started about 10 years ago. I was doing a white paper on digital divides. And back then, we thought of digital divides as an access divide. And this was basically what the report was about. So I wanted to do a best practice case study for this report. And I'm Swedish originally, so I didn't want to do Sweden to seem biased. So I picked Finland, because at that point, and mind you, this is more than 10 years ago, more than 90% of the population was already online in Finland. So I talked to the Minister of Finance that was responsible for sort of digital inclusion in Finland. And I said to uh, the person, you know, how come Finland is so successful? Can you tell me the secrets to the Finnish success story? And he said, Kim, we're not successful at all. We're doing terribly. And I said, yeah, but you have 90 something percent of the population online. He said, yeah, but they just play games. They don't do anything useful. <laughs> and I forget the statistic he cited me, but it was something that most high school students in Finland couldn't use Word or Excel or any of these productive software tools. And so that's when I changed my philosophy on digital divides to realize that access is only the beginning. What you do with that access is perhaps even more important. So that's my approach to the topic, and that's the reason I'm standing here today. I will go through 
a couple of background slides uh, just to set the context in terms of digital development. I will then talk about digital inclusion trends uh, across the world. And I will then go into a little bit about digital measurement because we need to measure progress. There are three aspects to this, as uh, Minister Isvaran uh, pointed out in his introductory remarks, the public sector, the private sector, and uh, people. And uh, they all play a very important role in this effort. So just to quickly go over some of the benefits from a people perspective, we saw in 1990 was the first year that Americans could file taxes online. And you can see here that four million people did. Uh, 10 years later, that had tenfolded to 35 million. We see it surpassed 100 million in 2010. And uh, I think the 2018 numbers just came out, but when I put this together, it was the 2017 numbers, and you can see that um, we're approaching a rather large percentage of the population that now file online. Why do they do so? Of course, it's more convenient to sit in front of your computer, and uh, some of these softwares have already pre-filled information you just submit, instead of doing it uh, by hand, of course. So that's an efficiency and convenient standpoint for people. For the public sector, there are many benefits, of course, the convenient for the public sector as well, but just from an economic perspective, uh, we can see that it's very efficient. In terms of the unit cost per transaction, you can see uh, for face-to-face, -face it's 50 unit cost, whereas digital is one. So basically 50 times more efficient. Um, I put the links in, you can see the sources. And I think my presentation will be available later, so um, you can look this up. The data here is from uh, the UK government. Denmark, I'll talk more about Denmark later in the presentation, but you can see here that the cost of sending a physical letter compared to one by digital post, as they call it, substantial cost savings for the government. For the private sector, uh, of course, again, taking the uh, monetary perspective, we see here, this is no surprise, you've probably seen this before, the number of individuals using the internet and the increase in mobile cellular telephone subscriptions. The last year for which we have reputable data from um, the value of e-commerce 2017, it comes from UNCTAD, we can see it was 29 trillion. It's a huge booming digital economy, of course. So, you know, everybody has something of interest in bridging digital divides and improving digital inclusion. So let me first talk about the divides. As I mentioned, I started out thinking about the topic as an access divide, and that's probably where most of us started. But then there are so many different divides. Minister Svaran talked about the Silver Initiative, which is the age divide. This is also very common in my home country of Sweden. Um, different countries, of course, face different challenges. I'm not going to go through all of these in detail, but we can see that obviously there's education divide, uh, gender divide, income divide. These are, you know, social divides that unfortunately have also become digital divides. One of the things that I actually wrote a chapter for the most recent UNE government report on leaving nobody behind. And one of the findings uh, that has come out in the research is that there's a very close correlation between social divides and digital divides. And so by focusing on those, maybe we can even tackle two issues at once. But uh, all of these divides, of course, are very important. Uh, in a lot of countries, they're an urban-rural divide. 
uh, probably less so here because Singapore is a rather small place, but in countries such as Vietnam, where I live, uh, it's a big issue. Um, the last point on this slide is the one to the bottom right, useful usage. And that's the term I came up with after speaking to the Finnish ministry. And I thought we need to coin a term for this very important aspect on how people actually use their online access. And we came up with useful usage. So that's a term I've been using. And um, I was so inspired by this white paper that a couple of years later, I decided to do um, an entire book about the topic. And a lot of my presentation is drawn from this book. A couple of the key points um, beyond just the term useful usage is that there are a number of different digital devices we saw on the previous slide. And there's often a gap between the availability, the supply of services, and the demand for them. Many years ago, South Korea was number one in the world in terms of e-government. And they had all these services and all this information, but they ran a survey and it turned out that only half the population were using them. So even though they had all these services, there was a big gap to usage. Now, of course, that's improved, but in a lot of countries, and I do some work in the Middle East, uh, it's all about raising awareness. The service is already there. So they need to be improved in many ways in terms of usability, web accessibility, uh, you know, efficiency, convenience. But we cannot forget about raising awareness about the services and for people to actually be able to use them. And that's why I'm glad that we're having this conference here today to raise the awareness and profile of digital inclusion. So the challenges to digital inclusion vary around the world and countries tackle barriers both similarly and also differently. There are some innovative ideas and um, I'll go through a couple of countries to talk about at a very high level what they're doing. Uh, I wanted to just start with Singapore. I'm not going to talk about Singapore because I think you know it. Uh, but in terms of digital inclusion, you're focusing on digital access, digital literacy, uh, which I understand contains digital skills and uh, sort of along the lines of useful usage. And finally, digital participation. So as I said, let me just touch on a couple of points from different countries. And what I, what I tried to do was to pick out some of the unique points from each country. So instead of just going through all the overlap, I, I, I sort of tried to pick out some of the interesting aspects. So in Denmark, a country that's doing very well in terms of digitalization, the, the key things in their digital strategy is satisfaction rates. And this goes to my earlier point that I mentioned about measuring digital inclusion. So in Denmark, they are measuring the satisfaction rates for all the digital services that the government is providing. The UK actually does something similar. So whenever you use a service, you can rate it. How easy was it to use? And uh, did it achieve the outcome that you desired? Now it's funny because here in Singapore, you do this all the time in the physical world. When I go through immigration, it says, how happy were you with uh, your immigration experience today? Right? So Denmark is doing this online. And I think that's quite in interesting. And they can track trends over time. So whenever they change the service or try to improve it to see if that actually had an effect with how people um, perceived it. 
The second point about Denmark, and this is very interesting actually, it's a digital post. You remember I showed you how much money the government is saving by moving to digital posts instead of traditional mail. Well, they realized that this was of such importance and great convenience that every Danish citizen is required to have a digital mailbox by law. So everybody in Denmark has a digital mailbox. Now you can link your digital mailbox to your personal email so it's not that you have to have an additional account, but you have to have a way for the government to contact you digitally. So now you will ask, well, what about those people who cannot use digital post? The way that Denmark has resolved this is that they say, you, then you have to designate somebody to be your caretaker of your digital post. See, so if I cannot use my digital post, I can assign Nadzira to, to check my account. And then, of course, there are government offices where you can go and get help to access your digital post. But the key point is that you have to have a digital post account. The last point about Denmark is that they have a new digital strategy. It just came out. And uh, just to mention that they have now a focus on data and transparency because they are increasingly realizing that this is beyond open government data, just putting the data out there. They need to be in a machine-readable format and make everything as transparent as possible so that citizens and businesses alike can access any government information um, that they want. I told you earlier I didn't want to be biased by talking about Sweden, but I will. <laughs> Um, so in Sweden, we have a digital strategy that encompasses five different areas. And uh, it's, of course, infrastructure, innovation, skills. And um, it's interesting because they take a very broad perspective. It's a very simple strategy. It's short, but it takes a very broad and long-term perspective. And then they go into more detailed plans over time. One of the interesting aspects is, on all this is that they have an initiative they're called Swedes and the Internet, which every year they do a big research report on how Sweden fares with not only digital inclusion, overall digital society, but with a focus on digital inclusion. You will be interested to know that the most recent report focused on the elderly. And I think this is a very key issue, uh, not only in Sweden, but also here in Singapore as we have aging populations. And uh, that's why it's very nice to see that you have the Silver Initiative, which I think is a great one, and something we should adopt in Sweden. Um, what we do in Sweden is a little bit different, but we rely a lot on community groups and research institutions to help in this effort. Finally, in Sweden, and also in other European countries, there's a great focus today on web accessibility one of the reasons is that the EU passed a directive that public sector websites have to be web accessible. This, of course, is very important. There's a lot of people with various disabilities that need to use all the online services, but they may have trouble to do so if websites aren't properly designed. It can be such things as an image is mi missing a description, which is a very typical example. 
and it's fine for, for me, but if you have a, a disability where you cannot see the screen and you rely on a screen reader, you don't know what that image is. So this has been a tremendous focus in all EU countries to a more or lesser extent. Uh, in particular now in the Scandinavian countries, we see that web accessibility is a, is a very big topic and uh, it's very important the websites get designed properly at the outset. And uh, we see that um, it's, it's interesting because you know, it's coming into as a direct directive and so they now have to do this. Um, currently for existing websites in the first phase and the next phase for all websites any new websites. The United Kingdom, and I promise I'm not only going to talk about European countries, but the United Kingdom is interesting because they have a digital first strategy. So that means that all services and information should be delivered digitally first. <laughs> um, meaning you have to deliver them by digital means. Now you can also deliver them via other channels, but they have to be by digital means, and it may only be by digital means. And so that again raises questions about those who cannot use digital means. And again, the UK has a support system for this. You can go and get assistance. It's a little bit like Denmark um, where, you know, you, you have a backup choice, but it's interesting that it's moving in this direction. And that's why it's so important to bridge these digital divides and improve digital inclusion. Because, you know, in the future, everything will be digital. Like in the UK, digital first. There may not be any offline channels for services. The UK is actually number one in the world in terms of the United Nations e-government survey. One of the interesting things about the UK government portal, which is, is gov.uk, is that it's an open source solution, meaning that anybody can take the code and reuse it. One of the countries that did this was actually New Zealand. So instead of building their own government portal, they literally took the UK portal. And then, of course, they tweaked it. But it's a great collaboration because now you have two countries working on the code instead of one country. So it creates efficiencies to uh, enhance the portal. Finally, in the UK, there's a big focus on cybersecurity. I mentioned at the outset that this is a topic that's of great interest to me as well. From a digital divide perspective, it's about enhancing trust. Uh, I think in Malaysia they were going to introduce uh, a watermark on the website, a trust mark. And the UK is moving in this direction as well. So when you go to a government website, you know it's been verified for cybersecurity. So you know that you can send your information and that it will be um, stored in safety. I'm not going to talk too much about South Korea because my colleague who will be speaking later will go into a great amount of detail here. But I just wanted to uh, point out three things for South Korea very briefly. One is uh, it's a digital infrastructure leader. 
And again, my colleague will speak in great detail on this uh, and tell the story about how Korea went from next to nothing in terms of digital infrastructure to become a world leader. It's also a global e-government leader. As I mentioned earlier, South Korea was uh, number one in the world for several years in the, in the UN e-government rankings. I think they're now number three, um, but they're still in the top five uh, primarily. And again, the focus in Korea these days has been on actually using the services and uh, get people, raise people's awareness about them. And that's why I mentioned this gap in supply and demand at the outset. Vietnam, the country where I spend most of my time, we did a World Bank readiness assessment on the state of the digital economy in Vietnam. We just finished it in uh, January, actually. As uh, Nadsira mentioned, I am a World Bank consultant. And uh, Vietnam is doing quite well. In the UNE government rankings, it's number 88 in the world out of 193. But what we found in Vietnam as a key strength in the country was the strong leadership at the top. And uh, the problem that we found in Vietnam was that we couldn't really see this in practice. So even though there was a strong vision and uh, the prime minister, Mr. Nguyen Xuân Phuc, is uh, very strongly behind digital economy development generally, but there's a, sometimes a lack of implementation in practice. And that goes to an important point about raising awareness not only amongst external users, but also internally within organizations to actually improve and uh, help implement those big strategic initiatives in practice. One thing that's very interesting about Vietnam, I talked quite a bit about the UNE government survey, which, looks, uh, which benchmarks countries across the world for comparison reasons. Vietnam took this methodology and implemented it locally. So it's the same methodology, but it tracks the progress only within Vietnam. So Vietnam has 63 provinces and a number of different government agencies, and they apply this methodology to all the agencies and all the provinces to have their own digital assessment. And this is really useful because we often see in these rankings that nobody wants to be last. And so it, it forces agencies to enhance their standing in the next year's ranking. And of course, the people on top are very happy about it. So this has been a very good driver for Vietnam, not only for the agencies internally to improve, but also that it raises awareness. Every year when the ranking come out, of course it's in the media. And so it raises awareness amongst the entire population because it's making the front page news. I hope our symposium here today will make the front page news tomorrow. Not so much because we can all be proud of ourselves, but because it raises awareness. And I think that's a key message. The other thing about Vietnam that I wanted to point out is that they have a new cybersecurity law, which is that the data has to be stored in the country. Now, I'm not gonna go into any level of detail about this, but this is, we have seen that this is an increasing movement 
in many parts of the world. So in the last section, I'm going to talk about measurements more specifically. Now, I talked about the UNE government report many times. Uh, here it is. So essentially, it measures the capacity of countries to use online and mobile technology in the execution of government functions. In 2018, Denmark was number one. Singapore was number seven. I think Singapore has continually been in the top 10 or top 15, doing very well. But it's interesting how you know it evolved so much when we started this back in 2002. I would go to Singapore website, and Singapore was one of the best, you know, and uh, they literally had 15, 20 services online. So it was very easy for researchers to go to the website and assess which services were offered and say, okay, Singapore has X and Y and C and gives a score of whatever, nine. But today you go to a Singapore website or any other website and there are thousands and thousands of services. And it makes it very complicated from a research perspective for the researchers to spend the time to assess what is actually available. But one of the things that we found is increasingly important is that people can find the services. Because if you go to a government website and you can't find something in 10 minutes, well, then you might as well pick up the phone and call, right? And I showed you the, the data earlier on how much cheaper it is to conduct transactions digitally compared to over the phone or face-in-face. -face. So now I think there's a big emphasis on making services more easily discoverable so people can actually find them. And again, for this particular report, I wrote a chapter on uh, leaving nobody behind. And uh, that was a little bit in light of the SDGs. But uh, again, what we found is that social and digital exclusion are interlinked. So people who are socially excluded are typically also digitally excluded. And uh, this is quite important of a focus area so we can bridge those divides. Another organization I do work for is uh, The Economist Group. And uh, we did a survey a couple of years ago now, which was very interesting. We surveyed policymakers, government officials, and people from the private sector, particularly in telecoms, to see what was the difference in their views of digital inclusion and digital divides. Well, affordability was the biggest barrier overall, followed by, interestingly enough, a lack of ability and skills to use ICTs. And now there was the difference here between the two groups is that policymakers were twice as likely as telecom executives to cite the lack of ability or skills, while the roles were reversed in terms of tackling the urban-rural divide and the speed challenge on how fast is the network. Of course, this makes perfect sense because telecoms executives are interested in making money, so they wanted to make sure that urban-rural divides are bridged and that there are good telecommunications networks. The uh, government officials, of course, were more interested in making sure people have skills to use public services. 
But it's interesting to, even though it's very apparent, it's still interesting to put it in a finding like this because we need to realize when we talk across sectors, public and private sector, that we have somewhat different motivations. So understanding that can help us collaborate better with each other. One interesting aspect of this, uh, is the last point I'll make on this slide, is that the majority of survey takers pointed out that regulation is actually a benefit rather than a burden when it comes to digital inclusion. We followed this up with uh, some qualitative interviews, of course, and we found that the private sector likes to know the rules and that the rules are the same for everyone. And on the basis of those rules, then we can compete. So when there are no regulation, then you don't know where to start. And so they said it's actually better to have regulation. Now, maybe not strict regulation, but they prefer to have regulation. And I think that's quite interesting when it comes to digital inclusion, that we have sort of a framework for what we're trying to achieve. One example about um, benchmarking, which I've been saying is rather important, is uh, this Internet Inclusion Index produced by the Economist Intelligence Unit uh, together with Facebook. The interesting things about this index is that it has global coverage. It covers 100 countries, which have combined 96% of the world's GDP. So it has a broad coverage. It measures availability, affordability, relevance, and readiness in terms of internet inclusion. In 2018, Sweden was number one, followed by Singapore. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to highlight those countries in the earlier slides, because you're actually doing very well, and we can still see that you know, we're doing some slightly different things in Sweden, you're doing some slightly different things here. So I think that lends itself to we should learn from each other, not only between public and private sector, but also internationally. I'm coming up on time, so I'm not going to spend too much on this slide. But just to say that, you know, as we all know, there's all these emerging technologies, sorts of artificial intelligence, augmented reality, virtual reality, smart cities, I mentioned SDGs. And, you know, it's, it's important to recognize that these technologies, I mean, they exist today, but they will proliferate over the next couple of years. They will also have an impact on digital inclusion in the future, on how we use these technologies maybe to bridge some of the divides, or how these technologies get implemented in everyday activities that are increasingly digital and may create new digital divides. So in terms of the ways forward, there's a need to redefine digital inclusion, as I mentioned, from simply being access, to look at all the factors that underpin it. And in this effort, as we have talked about a lot, the public, private, and people sectors must come together. There's a stake in it for everybody. We may have slightly different motivation at times, but we're all interested in bridging these gaps. The ability and motivation to use the internet is a key factor. Several studies have shown that one of the reasons that those people who are not using the internet 
is because they don't understand the benefits of what's in it for them. And this is a finding that I've seen in the, in the United States, in Australia, in Sweden. It seems to be a global problem that those people who are not online, they don't understand why they should be online. They're asking, well, what's in it for me? And so it's key that we raise awareness, not only about the topic generally, but explain what is the benefit of being online. And finally, as I've been talking about, uh, we need to track progress because it's great that we're doing all these initiatives, but to have numbers like they do in Denmark to show that we improve this much and satisfaction rates have improved this way, it's incredibly helpful, especially when you try to evaluate new initiatives. And with that, I would like to thank the organizers, IPS and IMDA for inviting me here today. It has been a real pleasure and I hope I can make a small contribution to raising awareness about this really important topic. So thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Anderson. The chairperson for the Q&A session is Dr. Carol Soon, Senior Research Fellow at IPS. To ask a question or leave a comment for Mr. Anderson, simply scan the QR code on the screen behind me or go to pigeonhole.at. The passcode is IPSIMDA26 July. You can also vote for the questions that you want the chairperson to ask. However, should you wish to ask questions in person, please raise your hands and we'll bring you a microphone. Thank you, Nazira. Um, thank you, Kim. Uh, a very good morning to everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us on a Friday morning. And thank you, Minister, for taking time to be here. So, Kim, thank you for um, sharing with us your thoughts and setting the stage for today's discussion. Um, I thought you raised quite a few important key points, uh, one of which, of course, when we look at digital inclusion, um, you started in the beginning of your talk and you kind of ended with it, uh, for a rallying call to consider dif different types of divides and to think about, you know, what are some of the divides, for instance, that we may have neglected, right? And I assume that the divides in different countries would be quite different. Um, I think your landscape scan of what's being done in terms of the different countries like Denmark, Sweden, UK, Vietnam and South Korea were also quite useful in helping us at this, uh, understand a little bit more on the various kinds of government initiatives um, that are being put in place in these countries to drive digital inclusion. So perhaps I'll start with my very first question um, as a chair of this um, dialogue um, by asking you, in the few countries that you've mentioned, you clearly demonstrated that policymakers um, and government agencies play a very important role in driving digital inclusion. Um, I'd like to hear from you your comment on the role and state of play among the private and people sectors in these countries in driving digital inclusion. I think this is quite an important question, especially when today we hear, uh, see the in, um, participation of you know, people from all three sectors. So we would very much want to bring them into the conversation as well. So where do you think the private and people sectors are in some of the countries you've mentioned in terms of their contributions to fostering digital inclusion? And what more do you think needs to be done?
Thank you, uh, thank you very much, Carol, um, for your kind words and also for an excellent question. I think what we see in, um, I'm not gonna talk about country by country, but to sort of summarize, um, what we see is in the private sector across the world, uh, financial services in particular, uh, is very interested in bridging digital divides. Um, for very obvious reasons, they want to move customers to online banking. <laughs> um, but you know, it goes beyond that and here's where interests overlap, because banks want customers to bank online. Government wants citizens to conduct services digitally. So there's a natural partnership there. And in some countries, uh, the partnership extends to the government putting you know, a government kiosk or advertising in the bank office. So when people go to the bank, they can conduct government services at the same time or can scan a QR code for the, the link to where they need to declare taxes or, or uh, something like that. And in return, the government does the other way around and pro provides uh, free advertising, if you will, for banks. So in terms of the private sector, banks are very interested in this. Uh, telecoms, of course, also very interested because they want to acquire customers. As I mentioned earlier, there's a slight difference in motivation um, where telecoms are more interested in bridging certain divides than others. Uh, but there's still a very natural partnership uh, with uh, telecoms. In terms of the people sector, I think, you know, initiatives such as Silver Initiative are very interesting. Uh, the problem with that is you rely on volunteers. And, you know, it's, it's really great that uh, you have volunteers. and You can never have too many. Uh, the problem is that a lot of people are very busy. And they don't, unfortunately, have the time to volunteer. Um, they may want to volunteer, but they, they just don't have the time. So I think what, what countries are struggling with in this regard is how to motivate the average person to engage in a discussion around digital inclusion. And uh, I haven't seen anybody who's done this really successfully. I mean, I think the Silver Initiative, to me, is one of the most successful in regards to getting people to volunteer. Um, of course, it's a good initiative because it focuses on the elderly who have the time to volunteer. And so I think uh, to answer your question about the people sector, I think that's the hardest to engage the everyday person. Uh, the one interesting initiative I've seen is actually for, it, it's sort of like the silver initiative for kids. Because the, there's a natural tendency for the grandparents wanting to spend time with their children. So they actually train the children to train the grandparents. So the children feel like they're doing something important and they're showing their grandparents on how to do something. And the grandparents get to spend time with their grandchildren. So I think that's one of the more innovative initiatives I've seen to uh, engage in another uh, segment of the people group. Thank you, Kim. I think the lovely thing about pigeonhole is it really does facilitate a fair bit of democracy. So here I'm seeing quite a lot of questions asked, and I will start with the first question that has received the most votes, um, which is, how do we engage citizens who do not seem to understand the benefits of using digital technologies to um, use technology and to participate in them? So how do we encourage these, this segment? No, that's a great question, and I think that's really the million-dollar question uh, because, as I mentioned, a lot of these studies have shown that the main reason that people who do not use online services do not see the benefit of it. 
So there's an organization in the United States, it's called uh, Connect Kentucky. And they're very active in bridging digital divides. And uh, one thing that they did, I don't know if anybody's familiar with the United States Department of Motor Vehicles, but it has a very bad reputation uh, because you go to get your driver's license renewed and you can spend at least half a day waiting for your turn. So they realized, Connect Kentucky realized this and said, you know, the one thing that drives people crazy is when they have to renew the driver's license. So they worked with the Department of Motor Vehicles to raise awareness that you could actually renew it online. So people who went and found out that you can do it online, well, you saved yourself about at least four hours by turning around, go home, and renew it online. So this was a very clever way of getting people, of course there was a lot of people who already were online who did this as well, but it was a very clever way to get people online for the first time because they saw the benefit of saving themselves standing in line for half the day. So that's a clear motivation and I think initiatives such as that are very clever and of course they will vary by country, uh, but to identify those pain points in everyday lives and explain to people that you can do this online much faster and then they will see the benefit. Because it's all about the benefit to me, because there's so many initiatives, I keep mentioning the Silver Initiative, but there are so many other initiatives that are there to help people use technologies. So that's not the problem, those initiatives are there. So it's, it's getting those people to partake in those initiatives. And I think that's, that's the key point, and there are some innovative solutions, such as the one I just mentioned. Thank you. I think that's an interesting point because oftentimes we want, when we want to promote usage of a particular technology, we have relatively um, certain ideals or goals that we hope people would use technology for and almost being sometimes slightly prescriptive in our approach. But um, tackling it from the perspective of uh, what users need, uh, what they really would um, enjoy from using that te technology is a great way to start. I mean, personally, I remember when I moved to New York in 2004, 2003, I think the only thing that compelled my dad to learn how to use Skype was to, you know, the fact that he could communicate with his um, grandchild. So, so that's clearly a, a key driving point. Um, you have looked at uh, many countries in your work with United Nations and the World Bank. So one very popular question here is, based on your research, what do you think is the biggest opportunity for Singapore? I mean, first of all, Singapore is already doing very well. Uh, we should acknowledge that. Um, Secondly, I think the opportunities for Singapore would be the same as elsewhere. Um, you know, the world is going to be digital, and increasingly so. There's no question about that. So I think one of the biggest opportunities to me is actually digital inclusion. Because if we can actually get everybody to use online services, then we can get rid of the post office and a bunch of other institutions and save ourselves time and money you know, in Sweden, we got rid of the post office, actually. It's a very interesting example. This is a few years ago. But uh, one day the government said, you know, the post office is inefficient. It costs us a lot of money. So we'll just get rid of it. And it was really interesting because they sold off all the postal office buildings. There are in great locations all over the 
uh, all over the country, of course. So they got a lot of money for the state budget, and they paid down the debt with a lot of this money. And now you're saying, well, not everybody has email, right? No, they don't. So the government said, we'll outsource the postal services. Anybody can bid for them. And it worked wonderful because the, the people who are most interested in running the postal services were grocery stores because it gets people in the door, right? So when you go to, we don't have cold storage in Sweden, but uh, the equivalent, they have a post office desk there. And so the government doesn't have to run the post office anymore, the grocery store does it. And the grocery store not only runs it for the government, they pay the government to run it. So you have to bid for the next five years, how much would you pay to run the postal service? And you say, well, I will get so many extra customers a day, so I will pay you know, a million dollars. So the Swedish government says, great, thank you very much. And so they don't run the postal services and they make money. So, I mean, that is a very good opportunity. That's an offline example, I guess. But the government is focusing now on, similar to Denmark, digital post, right? So get rid of the post office physically and uh, have the grocery store pay us. And meanwhile, we will run government um, digital posts online. And I think last I saw, about half the population were signed up for the online. In Sweden, it's not mandatory. We're signed up for digital posts. So, I mean, that, that's a very clear opportunity. Um, I mean, there, there are so many more, but that, that's just one example of how you, in the digital age, can get rid of some, you know, offline, unnecessary uh, challenges and headaches and move your services to online. Um, so, I will ask two questions together. Okay, um, you, you talk about, the op you just answered the question on, on opportunities, and there are many people in the audience who are interested in strategy. So, someone is actually asking people, thank you, Minister. So, members of the audience are asking, what does it then take for Singapore to beat Sweden in the, 30, in the 3i index? So, that's the competitive Singaporeans in us speaking. And so, linked to that, okay, a related question is, what can the public sector in Singapore do even better or do more um, in terms of fostering digital inclusion? So number one, what more can we do to beat your home country? And number two, specifically, what more can the public sector here in Singapore do to help beat your country? Well, it was funny because a couple of years ago I spoke to somebody in Finland. It's a different person than the one I mentioned earlier. Um, and at that time, I think Sweden was number 10 in the world and Finland was 12. So I, I um, made fun of him for this. And he said, no, 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 I'm, I'm very grateful, actually. I said, oh, you don't want to beat us? He's like, no, nah, not really. And I said, why? Oh, because when we're behind you, I, it's so easy for me to go to my boss and say, I need more money. <laughs> so his budget increased for him to beat Sweden, but he didn't really want to beat Sweden because he had this nice increasing budget. So in terms of strategy, I mean, I think that's a good question. And I, I mentioned this little anecdote here because when we say beat Sweden, you know, I don't, I don't really care if you beat Sweden. I think the point is that we all do better, yeah. right? 
So we talk a lot about these rankings, but it's important to remember that you shouldn't rank number one or two just for the sake of ranking number one or two. The <laughs> that was the first good thing I said in an hour. <laughs> Uh, no, but it's, it is very important, actually, because when I go, I won't name the countries, but I, I go to so, some countries and they say, you know, how can we be number one, or how can we be our neighbor, or, you know, and I say, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, just ask yourself, are you, are you doing good enough, and are you providing what people want, and if you are, then spend the money on healthcare, education, or something else, you know, technology is very useful, but, and it is, of course, efficient, and all this, but, we have to remember that it's only a tool, you know, we shouldn't do it just because we can or because we want to rank higher. Um, so to the second question, um, which aligns a little bit with this on how the public sector can do better. Um, I mean, I think we can all do better, right? But, uh, we can always improve. In terms of the public sector, given the topic we're talking about, digital inclusion, it's also important to remember that there's digital divides within the public sector. Uh, now, most people in the public sector probably have some level of digital skill, but do they have all the skills necessary? And I think, you know, retraining programs, for example, and continuously raise skills, and I think that's why it's very important, uh, interesting that we're at the Lifelong Learning Center, because there is a continuous need to reskill and retrain and challenge yourself because as we all know, technology evolves so quickly that there are new technologies coming all the time. And I think in the public sector in particular, providing services to constituents, it's important that you as a public sector official or employee have those skills so that you can help others and you understand where everything is going. So I would say that the one thing that to do better, and it's not only Singapore, of course, this is a global challenge, uh, to me it would be retraining. Yeah. Of, of uh, public sector employees to retrain and reskill themselves over time. So a lot of the focus has been on digital inclusion. So there are some members of the audience who are quite concerned, you know, with some of the consequences of um, use of digital technology. So for example, you know, um, one area is to look at issues of addiction and excessive gaming. So what, in your opinion, um, needs to be done in order to deal with mental wellness to curb addiction and excessive gaming? That is a very, very good question. And uh, I actually mentioned this very briefly in my book, um, the downsides about greater inclusion um, and greater connectivity. And this is, <coughs> this is actually a global problem. Um, a lot of Scandinavian countries face a big problem. Uh, a lot of children just play games, you know, eight hours a day. And it, I know it's a big problem in Korea. Maybe my uh, friend knows more about this. It's also a problem in Vietnam. Um, in uh, Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, they actually closed down the gaming cafes, I think uh, it was at 10 p.m. And they closed them until the next day, I forget when they reopened, but the kids were playing games all night and then they were too tired to go to school the next day. So they forced them to close down. Now, this was a little bit controversial, so after a couple of years, they, they actually let them reopen and be open all night, but that, that's, a, that's a policy challenge. Um, that you know, we have to be very 
conscious about. And to me, that's another digital divide that you know people just spend too much time doing unproductive things. Um, and that goes to my point on useful usage that I mentioned. Are people doing something useful with the access, or are they simply just you know playing games? Uh, I don't have the solution to this problem. You could do what Vietnam did, and, or um, actually the city of Ho Chi Minh City, um, and close down the gaming cafes. But some people say, well, you know, that takes away from you know your privacy and liberty and all this. So it, it, it's a very fine road to to, to go. Uh, so I, th I think it's a policy problem that policymakers really need to look into. Of course, as parents, you can also um, set restrictions for your children. But I think it, it's a, I don't have the solution, but I do think it's a big, big problem. Oh, well, wait, we need a microphone for you. Microphone? Yeah. Thank you. Is that microphone? Yes, it's coming down. Oh, it's way. coming down. I'm very grateful, by the way, because I didn't have the answer. Now you will give us the solution. Hi, I'm Denise. <laughs> I used to be a teacher in student care at Gonghua. Um, that time when I was taking care of the people, a lot of them are addicted to the phone. They can't get out. And that time, the era was 2015. There was this crazy uh, fan over, craze over plant versus zombie. So to get them out of the phone, what I did is that I observed the game. I played myself. And then based on the story of the game, I bring it out to life. So I taught two to three kids how to play plant versus zombie. But in this, in this sense, the plant has empathy, a heart. The zombie had no heart. So throughout this game itself, it teaches children how to um, care for one another. And over time, this game actually spread across the whole school, surprisingly, after I left. So actually, sometimes you talk about addiction. There's a way to cure it, is see the game as a game, but bring it out to life and get the people involved, the main people, your main actors, your main characters involved, give them a role, give them a story, and tell them to play it the way they want it to be played. Hopefully, through that journey, um, from what I do as a teacher, I will ask them, at the end of this game, what do you learn? Um, how do you feel when one of your friends died in, in this game? Do you want to save him because he's now a zombie? Or do he want to be not safe because it's the plan. Either way. Thank you, Denise. Thank you for sharing your comment with us. Um, one final question and we'll break for tea. Uh, you know, you started this talk of yours by talking about your master's dissertation 17 years ago when you wanted to do your dissertation on cybersecurity and no one thought it was important. Um, you ended your talk with um, highlighting issues, potential trends and developments such as AI, VR, augmented reality, um, even 5G, big data, etc. So I would like you to apply that foresight, say 17 years from now, Okay, um, what do you, how, how do you think the digital divide might look? And what do you think we should start thinking about now? So basically you're asking me for investment advice, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, uh, it, it's a good question. You know, when I interview people, I, I usually ask the same question, like a forward-looking question, you know, five to 10 years from now, you know, where will we be? Uh, it's a great question. I think for me, and you already touched on this. Uh, the issue will be cybersecurity. 
Um, yeah, I think cybersecurity will not go away and it will be a bigger issue. Uh, because we're, you know, we're becoming increasingly reliant on digital technologies and tools. And we're promoting them for all the various reasons that I mentioned earlier. And so I think, you know, with that comes potential consequences. So I think cybersecurity will be the number one topic on the agenda. Because I hope that 17 years from now, we will have bridged all the digital divides. And um, we will have greater participation in terms of electronic inclusion. And uh, I mean, we can see already in um, some countries we're approaching 99% of the population is online every other day. And um, Sweden is 99% online, but not every day. Um, so we're, we're seeing a continuous progress in digital inclusion, which is great. Uh, so I think the challenge um, will still be, unfortunately, cybersecurity. Because even when people come online, even if we're all online, some of these people won't have the necessary skills to protect themselves. And uh, you can sign up for a great initiative like the Silver Initiative and be able to come online, but you don't know all the consequences. I think, uh, you know, it's, of course, you can train people in cybersecurity, but the problem is that the cyber criminals are becoming more sophisticated as well. So that's why 17 years from now, I hope we have complete digital inclusion, but I fear that we will still be challenged by cybersecurity. Thank you very much, Kim. We actually have a few more questions which we didn't manage to get through, um, but feel free to swarm him during tea break and um, ask him your questions. Um, thank you once again, and please join me in uh, thanking Kim.